So the, the reading is from John uh, 6, and uh, it's John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. How far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 or more people from all but nothing must rank as one of the best-known stories in the entire New Testament. And its significance in the earliest church can't be overstated. I mean, after all, it's the only of the one of the miracle stories or signs, to use John's language, that's attested to in all four Gospels. But here in John's Gospel, we see it from John's slightly different angle. John puts Jesus squarely at the centre of the story. And that's sort of the point I want to bring out of the story for us today. As a church, you're at um, Five Header entering a new and exciting time. I mean, Matt, who is on here with you today, your new minister is shortly going to be joining you, shortly going to come into this new gifts, a new family. It's a new season, lots of changes. And that is a time of excitement and a time of expectation. What will you guys be able to achieve together? What will it be like with someone new at the helm? And now that image, the image of a helmsman, I must admit, is an image I like using when talking about churches, because you see the helmsman is not the captain. All he does is steer the boat in the direction that the captain dictates. He needs to be skillful in guiding the boat, able to read the water, 
the weather, the tides, the currents, but he's not the one who sets the destination. And it's also an image that the, the earliest disciples, um, Peter, Andrew, and the other fishermen would be familiar with. But actually, I digress a bit. Back to our passage. And it's important to note with this passage, <coughs> excuse me, that it's a beginning of a much longer passage. It takes up the whole of chapter six. But I thought the 72 verses were a little excessive for our time today. But it's important to note that this story, the feeding of the 5,000, as we call it, and the next little episode, Jesus walking on the water, although they are really important for what they say about who Jesus is, in some ways, they're just a way that John uses to introduce the, the really challenging events that are, that are about to follow. A way to introduce the really challenging theological points he wants to make about Jesus's identity and his mission. Now, John and all the gospel writers actually do all of that kind of thing all the time. They arrange the events that they've chosen to include in ways that best bring out the aspects of Jesus's life, ministry and being that are their particular focus. Excuse me, I'm going to go backwards a bit. My light's starting to come through your window. That's a bit better. Anyway, here at the beginning of the chapter, we see a Jesus who is at the height of his popularity in Galilee. But by the end of this chapter, that's all gone. Only the faithful few remain. And this story really is the key to that change. And it makes points that are just as relevant to our walk with Jesus today as they ever were, as they were the first time when it happened. So the basics, who, what, where, when, and the rest of it. And we'll start with when. We're close to the second Passover out of the three that John mentions. So we're halfway through Jesus's ministry. That makes it springtime, hence the plentiful grass for the multitude to sit on. Where? We're on a hillside overlooking probably the northeastern edge of Lake Galilee. Now, chapter five was set in Jerusalem, and some people have suggested that these two chapters should be reversed. But I think we've got exactly what we're intended to have. And the way it begins now um, after this is a typical way that John tells way of John telling us that time's passed. What are we doing here? One of the other accounts sets the timing as just after Jesus has heard the news of the rather gruesome demise of John the Baptizer. And that's one good, very good way and reason for the group to go off alone, to digest the news, to mourn, to pray. But what John has told us here is that Jesus' Galilean ministry has picked up a huge following. And John seems to assume that the basic facts of Jesus' ministry are known to his readers because he spends little time on the details. He sums all of that up as the signs he was doing amongst the sick. What John seems to be doing is to portray um, the way the crowds view Jesus as being some kind of signs and wonders worker more than any kind of great teacher or rabbi, let alone the kind of saviour he actually is. The inference here is that they've come to see the Jesus show wherever he goes. And a long tour of Galilee would have been physically, mentally and spiritually exhausting. 
and escaping to a remote area and out of Herod Antipas's jurisdiction, when you've already upset the authorities, by the way, when you need a rest is entirely understandable. But the crowds follow even here. And despite knowing full well that they're following for what he does rather than for who he is, Jesus welcomes them and has compassion on them anyway. And while I'm sure that he taught and he healed, that's not John's focus here. So he cuts his narrative to match that intent that he has. But even then, he includes details none of the others do, like being a boy having the loaves and fishes. He records Andrew's words and Philip's testing. And he records that the bread was barley loaves, which was considered the bread of the poor. And it would have been about the size and shape of something like a pita bread. Now, John's interest in the narrative here is more about drawing parallels in Jesus's Bible in, in between Jesus and the Old Testament. The Passover setting evokes comparisons with Moses, which is important to the events and discussions that are found later in the chapter. But which are also a reminder of God's promise of another prophet like Moses, which by Jesus's time was all wrapped up with the expectations of, of a coming Messiah. In a few verses time, Jesus walks on water, evoke, and that evokes ideas, thoughts of Moses parting the water during the Exodus, but also of Joshua doing the same at the Jordan, leading the people into their promised land, a land which was to be theirs, a land where they'd be free. And in the book of Joshua, Joshua's talked about using all kinds of kingly language, even though he never was one. And here we see at the end, Jesus, they want to make Jesus into a king. But he says later on in the gospel, my kingdom is not one of this earth. And the boy, the boy and the barley loaves are a reminder of Elisha in 2 Kings 4, where Elisha has 20 barley loaves set before a 100 men by his servant, who, like the boy here in John 6, is also called a pedarion in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the Septuagint. And that's a term that meant youth or servant. And they too, in that story, eat their fill and some is left over. But in each of these cases, Jesus is shown as superior to those who foreshadowed him, those who came before him. Moses and Joshua parted the waters by their faith in God. Jesus walked on water, showing that nature is subject to him. For Elisha, the bread was multiplied by a factor of 10. Jesus multiplied it by a factor of more than 2,000, even at two little loaves per person. And none of this would have been lost on John's audience and none of it would have been lost on Jesus's audience either. And we see as John's focus is on Jesus as provider and not on things like the obedience and participation of the disciples, who, as we know from the other accounts, were the ones who actually passed the food out. Because, again, John's focus is on who Jesus is and not on what Jesus does, on who Jesus is, not on what he does. Hence his use of sign, not miracle. But it's at the end of the passage that we come to the crux of the story for today. 
what we see is that unlike John, those who have come to the Jesus show are focused completely on what he does. They see all these comparisons to Moses, to Elisha, to Joshua. They see all their own expectations of who and what the coming Messiah is supposed to be, be and be all about. And they decide he'll do, we'll have him. They were all set to set him on a throne, whether he wanted it or not, to make him the figurehead for their own uprising. It wasn't about recognition of Jesus for who he actually is. It was about fitting him into the box they'd already made and labelled Messiah. But Jesus is wise to their intentions and he slips away, going further into the hills by himself, a strategic withdrawal and not his first. But this is the crux. This is the turning point. When he catches up with the crowd later on in Capernaum and he tries to explain all these things to them. When the crowd sees he's not the most messianic figure they thought he was, what do they do? Do they revise their expectations and continue to follow the true saviour, the true Messiah? No. All but the central core of his followers, the 12, the women who travel with them, the 72, turn away. Maybe a 100 remain out of 5,000 plus. A remnant like all the other remnants throughout the Old Testament, like Gideon's 300 men, like the few who chose to return out after the exile rather than stay comfortably in Babylon in the lives they had made for themselves. Israel is being refined. Whoever prefers their own way to God's way is being stripped away. In our passage, those who have come to see this wonder worker have actually been given a glimpse of God himself, but haven't understood it. In responding to the people's needs with compassion and provision, Jesus is showing the people a glimpse of God, a glimpse of his kingdom. And that might just be our, our first takeaway for today as God's church, as Jesus' presence in our community today do we give those in need a glimpse of God's compassion and provision a glimpse of the kingdom a choice but the other takeaway concerns the reactions of the crowd the crowd fits Jesus into their religious box of prophet and messiah they want to put God in a box that they remain in control of they want Jesus for their own ends, to promote their own agenda and call it God's. They don't want him for who he is, to save them from sin, save them from God's just wrath, to bring them back into God's army, if you like, to fulfill God's mission to the nations. No, they want a poster boy for their own army, their own political agenda. And I think this is a point that the church needs to grasp. I think of so many ways that we do exactly the same thing with Jesus even today. We put his cross on a flag and we go on crusade. We rarely stop 
really and truly to ask if this is indeed what he wants us to do. We decide what we want to do and we ask him to bless it. Too many times and too many ways we do this as a church. Rather than looking and to see where he is leading us, where's he already working? Where is he going? We end up saying Jesus would be against this and raising our banners or Jesus wants us to do this, whether he does or not. And we end up with sides, even amongst ourselves, condemning each other for the things that we do and we think we do in God's name. Conservatives and liberals and all the other schisms that we have between us within the church. So five head, you're entering an exciting time, but there may be some who expect to fit Matt's unique calling, gifting and plans God has made for you all through him into a box of their own making called minister. Or called Laurie with the label taken off and Matt's name put on the top. There are people who may want things to go on being just the same as they've always been. And that's understandable. It's normal, especially in times like this when the upheaval and the change is so great. But I would plead with you all to let God make not a box, but a bread basket. Because however unexpected the shape that he makes with all its lumps and its bumps and its natural curves, I can assure you that it will be a far, far better one than anything you can possibly imagine for yourselves. <laughs>